I thank God for prayers that are answered. Um, he is the God of miracles. And here's the way I approach it. When I pray something and ask God to do something or to prevent something from happening or whatever the prayer request is, if it happens similar to the way I prayed, if the outcome is what I was asking for, um, I call it a miracle. Um, sometimes people feel like that if man had anything to do with it, it wasn't really a miracle. And that is really wrong. Every miracle has human fingerprints. Every miracle. Um, God uses people to get His work done. And there are very few things that God does entirely by Himself. Almost nothing. Because He wants us to be a part of the miracle. And sometimes... Uh, those miracles happen in spiritual settings, and sometimes they just evolve out of natural life. You know, if, if you're in the medical industry and you work in that field somewhere, you're a part of somebody's miracle every day. If you are an employer and uh, somebody is praying for a job to take care of their family, you employ them for your company, you're a part of their miracle. If you're a school teacher and a parent's been praying for their child to do better in school and struggling with their grades and somehow God arranges them to be in your class and their grades go up and suddenly they're doing better, you're, you're a part of the answer to her prayer. You're a part of the miracle. And so the whole idea that if it's a miracle, man can't have anything to do with it is totally ridiculous. That's not God's plan at all. God's plan is to answer your prayer and to let other people be a part of the miracle. How many of you are glad you get to be a part of somebody else's miracle? So every miracle has human fingerprints. Now the other fallacy that, that I, I try to, to uh, erase is that um, if it can be explained scientifically, it must not be a miracle. And so in other words, if whatever happens has a medical or a scientific explanation as to why this happened or that happened, then it must not be a miracle. So some people see miracles only as those things which man cannot explain. And that's, again, just not the truth. You know, you and I are carrying around cell phones in our pockets, in our purses. And just a few years ago, that would have been a miracle <laughs> because we didn't have the technology, we didn't have the, the knowledge scientifically to have a, a virtual computer in our pockets at all times and communicate with people all over the world. Just a few weeks ago, I was having a face chat with a young woman at Hillsong College in Australia, and she's looking at me, and I'm looking at her, and we're chatting. It hadn't been that long ago, that would have been a miracle. But it's just common technology today. So as man increases in his knowledge, we further tap into the infinite knowledge of God. Every miracle has a scientific explanation, we just can't explain it. There's always higher levels of understanding, and as society, as human, the human race, increases learning and knowledge, we're explaining things that just a few years ago would have been an absolute miracle, unexplainable. But as we tap into higher levels of knowledge, 
Things we used to call miracles are commonplace. So I'm not looking for something that has no scientific explanation to put it in the category of a miracle. Because God uses the laws of nature, the dynamics of creation for every miracle. You know, scientists have studied the opening of the Red Sea and how the Israelis walked across on dry ground. And they have some amazing theories about how that absolutely happened on a very natural basis, just hasn't happened again. When fire fell out of heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, they have a very clear scientific explanation as to why and how that happened. But when it happened, of course, there was no explanation. It was just a miracle. So as you and I go through life, we're going to see more things that used to be in the miracle category because we couldn't explain it scientifically. And they're going to be moved over into the natural realm of science. So I contend that a miracle is not just something you can't explain because someday it'll all be explained. But a miracle is when God answers my prayer. That's what a miracle is for me. I don't get caught up in did man have anything to do with it because I know somebody did. And I don't get caught up is can it be explained scientifically because even if we can't explain it today, a few years from now they'll explain it. It's not about that. It's about going to God in prayer and asking God to intervene and to help and turn the course of events and, and, make, and create an outcome in prayer. And, and that's what a miracle is. It's when God answers your prayer. So every time I pray a prayer and that prayer comes to pass, it happens about like I pray. I just thank God for it and give Him the glory and say, well, thank God for another miracle. And I encourage you to live the same way. Uh, we're believing God for a supernatural summer. And uh, I'm hitting, hearing report after report of people that are having their prayers answered. Some of those are answers in the moment and some of those are answers from prayers they prayed for a long time. But God is answering prayer. And uh, thank God for His supernatural intervention uh, into our lives. A miracle is when God overrides the will of man and inserts his will. We through prayer influence the will of God and cause him to step in a situation and change the outcome. See man will do what man will do but God has the ability to override man's will and do his will. And when you and I pray and come into agreement with God, then it releases the will of God in the earth to override what would have otherwise happened. We prayed so diligently for my precious father-in-law, 91 years old and great man, and we all love him dearly. And um, at 91, you have a couple of heart attacks, you ought to be in heaven, period. But we just prayed and held on to him, and God gave him back, and He's with us for a while longer. And we just believe that's an answer to prayer. It's a miracle because God heard us when we prayed and uh, God held on to him. So thank God for it and thank God for all the wonderful people medically that, that make that happen. And so I want to encourage you to believe God for a supernatural summer and to believe that the prayers you are praying right now are being heard in the courtroom of heaven. A decision is being made, 
and God is moving in your behalf. Believe that your prayer has been heard and that God has already started things in motion in your favor. How many of you have some prayers you're believing God to answer for you this year? You know, I never live a day without unanswered prayers. I always keep a list of prayer requests that have yet to be answered. When my last prayer request is answered, I want to go to heaven. So I've got a list of things I'm praying for right now that hadn't happened yet. Have you got a list of things you're praying for that hadn't happened yet? That's the way we live. I've always got a list working. And when God answers that prayer, I check that off the list and put something else on the bottom. Because that's the way we live. We live in communion with God, praying and asking God to change the world around us. Someone asked the other day, if God answered all your prayers, would the world be different? The question caused us to face reality, are we only praying prayers for ourselves and our own personal situations, or are we praying some big prayers that might affect the bigger scope of life and the human race? Let's pray some big prayers. I've got some little prayers on my list, and I've got some big prayers on my list. Some prayers would be earth answers would be earth-shaking, and some answers nobody might notice. But God cares about each and every one of them. So whatever you're praying for, keep praying and believing. And um, I believe this is unique and a wonderful season. Um, I say that because I feel a real stirring deep in my heart. I'm feeling a call to prayer more so. You have your routine of prayer, the routine you conduct in the course of a week. Uh, and then you have, in addition to that, a call to prayer when you're drawn to prayer over and above what you would normally have done. And when I feel the Spirit calling me to over and above prayer time, I know that the Lord is up to something and He wants me to be a part of it. And when I say yes to additional times of prayer and devotion, when I say yes to that, He allows me to be a part of whatever He's doing. But if I say no, or I'm too busy, or I let it pass, and I don't take advantage of those calls to prayer, then I miss out on being a part of what God is doing around me. I don't want to miss out on what God's doing around me. I want to be a part of it. And the important thing is that I'm always responsive to the Holy Spirit, because that's His invitation to say, I'm up to something. You want in on it? How many of you want in on it? I want in on it. Oh, I love talking to you guys, and um, I always have more to say than I, than I can say on a Sunday morning. Uh, so I'm going to move fast here today. I've been studying about God's investment principle and how that you and I are God's investors. He entrusts us with time and talent and opportunity, and He expects us to invest ourselves in such a way that that investment grows and increases. I began this, uh, this study in the book of Matthew chapter 25, and you remember the story. Uh, Jesus gave a parable that was an analogy, and He was teaching with this analogy how that a man left the country, but before having done so, he invested, entrusted three servants with bags of silver. One servant, he gave five bags of silver, another two, and another one. Then after a while, he came back, and he called these men before him, and he said, Now, tell me what you have done with the silver I entrusted 
to you. And so the man with five said, well, I I invested it with the money changers and I made an additional five and so here's ten for the five you gave me. And the man that um, had two bags of silver, he said, you know, I went to work and I I conducted business and I, I, I created a profit and you gave me two but I have two more to give back to you because I invested it and I caused it to grow over a period of time. And then the man that only had one bag of silver came back and said, man, I knew you were a hard man and I'd be in big trouble if I lost what you gave me. So I just buried it and I I want to give you back your one. So the men that invested the silver were wonderfully rewarded. And the man that hid his and did not invest it was terribly punished. God demands you and I be his investors. He entrusts us with time, that's life, talent, abilities, skills, know-how. And then He gives us opportunities to employ those things. And if we invest them, they grow and multiply. But if we hide them, they remain the same. Someday God is going to hold us accountable for what we've done with our lives, our time, what we've done with the talents, the ability He's given us, and the opportunities that we encountered with life. And He will reward us accordingly. And if we have not increased and grown that and been a blessing to His kingdom in some way, directly and indirectly, then we'll all be punished for it. That's the story of Matthew 25. Today I want to talk to you about sowing to the Spirit. The Bible uses the term sow or plant. Um, It's an investment principle. And he says that we are to sow to the Spirit or to the Holy Spirit. We are to sow to the Holy Spirit. I want to talk to you about that for just a few moments. Uh, Let's go to the book of Galatians chapter 6 verse 8. I'm going to read it first from the New King James Version. For he who sows, that of course means plant, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit, notice the capital S indicating the Holy Spirit, will of the Holy Spirit reap everlasting life. So I'm going to take a few minutes and I want to talk to you about sowing to the Spirit. You know, every farmer understands the investment principle. They don't wear ties and they don't work in New York City on on Wall Street, but they understand the investment principle. Every farmer understands that you have to take your prime and best seed. Let's, Let's say it was corn or wheat. You would set aside your prime and your best. You would not eat that. You would not feed it to your livestock, but you would set it aside as seed for the next year. And so you would take that prime seed and you would sow it in the ground in the springtime of the year and you would carefully watch over that seed and and care for that young plant and wait till it grows and then ultimately it begins to blossom and ripens and then you can reap a harvest. You sowed a little bit but you reaped a great deal. And you know that before you can reap the harvest and, 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 and encounter that increase, you have to invest the seed in the ground. And once you drop that seed on the ground, it's dead to you and truly does go into a dormant state and it dies. That seed dies. But 
it germinates and it comes back to life. What turns out, what, what starts out as the tiniest seed becomes a whole stalk. And what was such a small investment becomes such a rich harvest. So every farmer understands the principle of investing. How that by giving small increments of our time and our talent, our abilities of ourselves, and planting that in the kingdom of God, planting that in ourselves, planting that in others, is going to bring forth a harvest in our lives. So we live our lives as God's investors, and we're sowing little increments of time and talent and abilities here and there so that ultimately we can reap a harvest from them. So in this study, I've been talking about how, how we should invest in the kingdom of God. We should invest in ourselves, and we should invest in others. If we want to see the harvest, we have to make investments giving small increments of time and talents and abilities and service to others is what makes all the difference in the world in the long run. It's a way of life. For a farmer, he has to do that year after year after year. And for you and I, it has to be a way of life that we're constantly making investments. There's no get-rich-quick schemes. There's no get-happy-quick schemes. There's not achieve-your-goals-quick. None of that happens. It's all about investing small amounts and over a period of time seeing that investment grow where that you have what you have. If you have a skill or ability today, you weren't just born with that. It's a combination of talent, what God gives you, and skill, what you add to it. And the truly great achievers in the world are those that have a certain amount of God-given ability that add to it a great deal of skill. It's the sum of the two. It's what you have inherently when you were born, the seeds of God inside of you, and then you add talent and training. You add skill and training and experience to that, and it's the sum of both talent and skill that makes the sum of who you are. God gives us, entrusts us with certain innate abilities, but then He expects us to invest in ourselves and to develop the skills we need to achieve. It takes small investments to create a great return for our future. Everything we, everything we do in life is a seed so, sown in the soil of our future. Every, um, everything we sow has a way of coming back to us. I read you Galatians chapter 6 verse 8. Now let's look at Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 the previous verse. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. It's one of the greatest insights to life you'll ever have. And that is this, that whatever I sow today is going to come up in my future. If I sow good things, good things are coming up. If I sow bad things, bad things are coming up. It, whatever I sow, the nature and the kind of whatever I sow, small increments of time, talent, ability, and service, whatever I sow is going to come back up in my future. Even though it's small and seemingly insignificant, and even though it doesn't seem to amount much in the moment, like a tiny seed sown in the ground, after a period of germination, it comes back up in much greater quantity than I sowed it. So, 
We have to realize that when we sow kind words, kind words are likely coming back to us. When we sow forgiveness, forgiveness is coming back to us. When we sow love, love is coming back to us. When we sow faith, faith is coming back to us. Whatever we sow is coming back. On the other hand, if I sow anger and bitterness and strife and accusation and unforgiveness, it's all coming back because each of those are tiny seeds sown in the soil of my future. Every thought, word, and deed is a seed. Every thought, word, and deed is a seed. And nothing is lost. Nothing is lost. When you realize that every thought, word, and seed is coming back to me in my future, it challenges me to be a lot more careful about everything I say and everything I do and everything I don't do. Because don't do is also a seed. It's not just what I do, it's what I don't do. Because what I don't do is just as much a seed as what I do do. You see what I'm saying? So I have to be careful with what I do and I have to be careful with what I don't do. Because they're both seeds that are coming back up in my life. Every thought, every word, and every deed is a seed. My thought life generates words and it ultimately generates deeds. So it's important that I start with making sure that my thought lives are pure and holy and right and full of faith and good things. Because those thoughts ultimately become words and ultimately becomes deeds. I think words have created power. God said this in Proverbs 20 and 18. A man's stomach will be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he will be filled. This is an agricultural reference. A person understands that when you sow a seed, it comes back. He said our words are like seeds, and when you sow those words, it becomes a harvest, and we eat the fruit of it. We enjoy the benefit of it or pay the consequences of it. Every thought, word, and deed is a seed. Words have created power, and they create the future that I'm, I want to live in. Now, I believe I'm living in the future, in the, in the, in the, I'm living in, in the now on the words and the deeds that I have previously sown in my life. Psalm 141 and 3 said, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And make sure that I'm speaking things that are consistent with what I desire in my heart for my future and what I'm praying for God to give me in the future. Put a guard on my lips. Put a door there, Lord, work, shut it off. Now, there's a difference in thinking a thought and speaking a thought. And the key is, I have to have a gap between thinking it and saying it. If there's not enough time lapse between the thought going across my mind and the word going across my lips, I'm likely to say something really stupid that I regret. But I've found that if I'll think about it long enough, I'll decide whether that thought needs to become a word or not. And sometimes things, the words sound so good when they're rolling around in my mind and I'm rehearsing them mentally, but then I say it to somebody else and it sounds really dumb and I'm like, man, why did I say that? It sounded so good when I was thinking it, but when I said it, it was like, oh my God, what was I saying that for? So I found out, number one, there's got to be a gap between thinking it and saying it. People make me nervous that just say whatever they're thinking. They make me nervous, especially if they're in high places of leadership. 
They need to stop and think about the impact of their words before they just blurt it out. I know some of the greatest mistakes I've made in my life have been words that I spoke without having properly considered the impact of that statement. But once those words go out, you can't like pull them back in, you know, like pull that, let me get that word back in there. I don't want that word. No, no. Once it leaves my lips, it's gone. It ain't coming back. And I'm going to have to deal with it in the future at some level. And so thoughts, words, and deeds are seeds. They're investments we're making in our future. Let's be careful what we invest. Now, every personal habit, good or bad, is an investment in our future. It isn't just what we do randomly or occasionally. It's what we do habitually. It's our routines. Um, And it's important that every personal habit I have is an investment in my future, that I have intentionally created habits in my life, routines in my life, that will add up to the life I want to live tomorrow. You know, what we do once in a while only has a slight impact on our future. But what we do day after day, or week after week, or year after year, those things create the future for us. Habits are indeed investments we make in our future. Some habits that we have, we don't even realize we have them. Our spouses know we have them. Our kids know we have them, but we don't even realize we have them. Um, Some habits we develop in response to life around us. Somebody else did something, something else happened, I have no control of, so I'm just responding to the world around me, and I create a habit of responding to the world as it chooses to be. And then some of my responses, I mean, some of my habits are things I choose, or I choose not, because choosing not is a habit just like choosing to is a habit. And so the more intentional habits I have in my life, the more I control what my future is really going to look like, the more aware I am of bad habits, and the more intentionally I am creating good habits, the better my future is going to look like. Habits will sink me. Our lives are the sum total of our habits. Now, I'm using the word personal culture. Most personal culture refers to my habits, my habits, what I do. Forget what my family does, what I do. And if we, want to, if we really want to have the future we want, we have to have the personal culture it takes to get there. And the, the habits that I intentionally create, the poor habits I intentionally replace with better habits, is, is the way to get your life moving forward and get to where you want to be. And if I can't change small habits, how am I ever going to change big ones? And if I have significant things about me that I don't want to be that way, I want to be something else. How can I change those big things if I can't change the little things? So the muscle it takes to change big habits is built by learning how to change little habits. So by changing little habits, you build the muscle and the strength, and ultimately you'll affect the big picture in your life. Now, you may be right where you want to be and the person you want to be, and it may be just right for you, and I celebrate with you. 
but I'm not there. I have some things that I want to change about me. I have some things about my way of life and things that I'm doing that I want to be better. I, I, I have some goals, personal goals. And I can't blame others. I can't wait on others. And I can't just pray and hope God does it for me. Changing, evolving as a human being takes effort. It takes personal responsibility. It takes honesty and openness and transparency. And that's how we move our lives forward. And so every habit is a seed. And uh, we should be very intentional about our routines of life. Very, very intentional. I'm convinced that if you have a healthy marriage, it's because you have a lot of good habits working, on, working for you. And if you're healthy financially, it's because you have a myriad of, of healthy habits that you, you've employed to get there. I believe if you have a good business, it's because you have some really good habits that you're, you're working. I believe if, if, if you're um, increasing and growing and expanding in your career field, it's because of a lot of good habits that you've developed. And sometimes if you feel like life is stalled, it's because habits have stalled your life. But change those habits, change your routine, and I think things will begin to move forward for you. I'm convinced of it. Now, um, let me move on just a little further. I, I want to get bogged down here. Okay, we must sow or invest in the Holy Spirit. I want to take you back to Galatians 6 and 8. But this time, I want, you to re I want to read it from the New Living Translation. If you all switch that translation for me. New Living Translation. Here we go. New Living. In the New Living, it says, Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. And so the New Living Translation translates it in this way. If we live to please the flesh. So what is the flesh? The flesh are sinful desires, sinful cravings, tendencies, and leanings of this carnal flesh. We were all shaped in sin, born in sin, and shaped in iniquity. We are born sinners because we're the sons of Adam. We have a propensity to sin. And every sin that has, is being, created, uh, being committed in the world today, the seed or the potential of that sin is right inside here, right inside me. Because I'm a human being, I have the capacity to commit any heinous crime or any ugly sin you want to name. I have the capacity right inside here to do it because I'm a human being. And yet for the grace of God, I would be doing all of those things except for God's grace on my life. But you have to know that if you please live to please the flesh, to satisfy inner cravings and desires, and you let your flesh, that carnal nature, that, that uh, sinful nature, if you let it rule your life and you're constantly feeding your flesh, feeding your flesh, satisfying the flesh, doing what your flesh wants to do, inevitably, Paul said, you're sowing seeds of destruction into your future. There's only one way to handle the flesh, and that's put your foot on its neck, and that's denied any expression or any gratification. You see, in me, there is a good man and a bad man. 
and they're always fighting. And the one I feed the most wins the most. So if I feed the carnal man by appeasing cravings and desires, then the carnal man survives and thrives. But if I sow to the Spirit, and I do what I feel the Spirit would have me to do in a moment, and I invest time into the Holy Spirit, and I create personal habits, a routine of investing in the Holy Spirit, then the Bible says that I'll reap everlasting life. There are good things coming to me according to the time I invest in the Holy Spirit as opposed to investing in the flesh. And so the idea is either you're going to live pleasing your flesh or you're going to live pleasing the Holy Spirit. Either you're constantly going to be satisfying your inner cravings and desires or you're constantly going to be following the Holy Spirit and doing your best to do His will in every situation. Paul said invest in the Spirit. Sow to the Spirit. Small increments of time, talent, opportunity, Small things that over a long period will do you much good. The more you satisfy the flesh, it seems the further the Holy Spirit seems to move away. And the more distance His voice is in your heart. The more you seek the Lord and do His will and do the right thing in right situations, the more the Holy Spirit is present with you, active in your life, empowering you, guiding you, using you. It all depends on how we live. And you know, life comes and goes, a day passes so fast, and I don't know anybody that isn't busy and has a full routine. Before you know it, we've lived our lives and made our living and fed our kids and done our jobs, and our routine doesn't contain enough time with the Holy Spirit, enough time investing in the things of God. And so we've just gone through life, and maybe we're not sinning. Maybe we're living at a level where we don't, you know, have to fight sin every day of our life. But at the same time, we're not investing in the Holy Spirit. I believe if we're going to have a supernatural summer and a supernatural life, we have to invest in the Holy Spirit. Let me keep moving. I look at the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I drop down to verse 19, and it says, Do not stifle or quench the Holy Spirit. The word quench is the same word that was taken from the act of, of quenching a candle. Like, you know, you lick your fingers and you just snuff the, uh, snuff the flame out. It quenches the Holy Spirit. And uh, we can't look at all this this morning, but if you look at that chapter, it talks about two categories of things. Behavior that snuffs out the Holy Spirit, quenches, stifles the Holy Spirit. It diminishes his expression, his activity in my life. And then other activities that cause him to flourish and, and be active in a, in a big part of my life and use me and help me and bless me. It's just what I choose to do. And my behavior either has a way of encouraging the fire of God in my life or snuffing it out like that of a candle. So to the Holy Spirit, do not stifle or quench him. Then we look at Ephesians chapter 4, and we drop down to verse 30. He said, do not grieve the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You see, this is one of the verses we realize that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it or a thing or an experience, but it's, it's God. 
It's a person. And God has emotions. Emotions are good. We're created image of God. We have emotions. God has emotions. And one of God's negative emotions is he gets grieved. What grieves God? Well, again, if in your private devotion this week, if you'll go back and you'll read this chapter, it gives you a whole list of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. When's the last time you visited someone that had lost a loved one? And they were in a deep state of grief. What was the look on their face? What, their, what was their countenance? What was their tone of voice? What was their topic of conversation? Uh, what was it like being with someone that was deeply grieved? Well, sometimes my behavior grieves the Holy Spirit. Grieves God. If we don't do the right things and say the right things and think the right things, the Holy Spirit gets grieved and closes in. You know, when I, I visit someone that's in a state of grief, it's like they've closed in on themselves. But if you're not in a state of grief, you're more open and alive and bright. So it's just a word picture. I want the Holy Spirit active in my life, and I don't want Him to be grieved by me. I want him to be active and alive and happy and doing things and letting me be a part of it. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So go back and read Ephesians 4 this week and see what you can pick up from that. I think it's real important that we have good spiritual habits, really good spiritual habits. Um, because each of these habits are seeds sown to the Holy Spirit. First of all, it comes down to personal devotion, personal devotion. Personal devotion is just times you're, you're praying, maybe worshiping with some music, uh, and when you're reading the Bible, or maybe you're reading other good Bible-based material. But the point is, it's times when you are interacting with God, expanding your mind, praying, talking to the Holy Spirit, and it's a seed sown. Now, wouldn't it be good if we could all pray two or three hours a day? But not many people can do that. I've come to the conclusion that small increments of prayer time and devotion is much better on a routine basis than those occasional, sometimes seldom, marathon prayers. Not many people can pray solid for an hour or two. Not even people, they can't even do that. So here's what I recommend. Create, a, create a, a routine of prayer, a habit of private devotion. Look at your whole week and say, okay, this week, on these days, I'm going to study and pray during these times. I, I'm going to uh, have these moments of prayer each day. Uh, your drive time, when your young children are taking the nap, or after the kids have gone to bed, or whatever fits into your life. There isn't like this special time of the day when you can get more done or, or, or God comes close or, you know, it's like happy hour with God. It's, it's what fits you. It's your schedule. And as you go through the seasons of life, your schedule will change. Your availability will change. You got a mother with two or three kids. She, she's cleaning the house and cooking food and, and changing diapers and washing clothes and but there's another day she's a grandmother, and the kids all are gone, and she sees them once in a while. She's got a lot more time. She has more flexibility. 
A young man's got one, two, maybe three jobs. He's got a full-time job. He's got a second job, and he's hustling. There'll come a day when he's got his kids raised and got them out of college, and he's just working one job now. So he, he can shift, and he can adjust. So I want to encourage you to create a routine of personal devotion that fits you, your life, and where you are today. And if you can't block off an hour, start with 10 minutes. You know, we're encouraging you to, to read through the Bible on your U version um, app in the Bible. It's fantastic. This year I'm reading through uh, the New Living Translation in a chronological Bible. And I'm out of time. Excuse me. Let me move on. So first is personal devotion. Second is weekly worship. Weekly worship. That's Sunday morning. That's life teams. But have weekly worship. It's a seed you sow. Uh, thirdly is serving others for the Lord. Somewhere where you give back. Somewhere where you're doing for others. It's not all about me and, and me be better and me be, my life be better. But it's, it's what I'm giving back. So three routines, three spiritual habits that give you the power to sow to the Holy Spirit. Personal devotion, first and foremost. Secondly is weekly devotion, a weekly routine of worship and with the people of God. And thirdly, serving others, giving something back, doing something, and it has to be a routine. And um, so as we look at this summer, and we're believing God for um, a, a supernatural summer, Here's some things I want to encourage you to do. First of all, increase your personal devotion. Whatever it is, just increase it. Don't go on a guilt trip on why it's not a lot more. Just whatever you're doing, increase it. That's all you have to do is just increase. Increase your personal devotion. Intensify your worship. Make sure you're already in the sanctuary when the first song starts. Don't wait to the one and a half to two songs before you get plugged in. But start with the first song and be intensive, intense with your, your worship in the house of God. Create a prophetic environment with your words. Our words create the worlds we'll live in. We need to create a prophetic environment where we're speaking what the, we believe the Spirit wants to do that is not. What the Spirit wants to happen but has not happened. What you and I believe we want to happen but has not happened. Create a prophetic environment with your words. You know, it's so difficult for me at times dealing with issue after issue after issue and problem after problem. Pretty soon all my words are problem-centered because I'm dealing with problems and I'm dealing with issues. And I realized that of all the words I came out of my mouth in a day, so many of them were trying to solve a problem and so few of them were creating a prophetic environment for me. So this summer I've been intentionally adding to my vocabulary more prophetic utterances of what I want to be that is not, what I believe God wants to do that has not happened yet. Fourthly, I think we need to starve the flesh, feed the Spirit. Starve the flesh, feed the Spirit. Starve the flesh, feed the Spirit. And then finally, the more you sow into the Holy Spirit, the more He'll manifest in your life. So the more you sow to the Spirit, the more He's going to manifest, the more active, the more vocal He's going to be, and the more He's going to allow you to be a part of what He's doing in the earth today. And that is my greatest desire to be some part of whatever God's doing around me. You can close your Bibles now. I'm going to ask you to stand. Now, Father, I thank you for touching my heart with this word and stirring me and giving me the opportunity today to share it with others. 
I pray that every word I have spoken would be a seed sown in their heart. How prone we are, Lord, just to forget what we heard and go on about life in typical routines. Let this be an interruption, a word that interrupts our normal routine, a word that won't leave their minds, a word they cannot get away from, a word that revolves around their thought life, a light that shines on the little portions of their day, a word that gives them encouragement, a grace to sow into your spirit, a word that builds their faith and their hope for tomorrow. I pray a blessing on the people of God. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. And I bless this seed I've sown in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen.